Hey, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 if you want to open your Bibles there. High schoolers, you are dismissed. Ephesians chapter 2. So we've been in Ephesians for a while now, going through this. Uh, you know, the first chapter, really, Paul's focusing on all the blessings we have in Christ an abundance of blessings that we have received in Christ Jesus. And, and as we transition into chapter 2, uh, Paul's considering the implications of Jesus' resurrection power in our lives. That, that in, 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 in addition to everything else, that being in Christ Jesus means that there is a, there is a, a power that comes from being in relationship with Christ. And Jesus' resurrection power in our life is manifested in a lot of amazing ways. So we've been looking at this. Um, last week we saw that Jesus' resurrection power not only delivers us from death and is deployed through us to lead others from death, but it also works to insulate us from division, one from another. Uh, Paul says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, but God saved you by grace through faith. And now he says you're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. If you were here with us last week, we took a look at that word workmanship. Literally, it means poem or work of art. And art, really, in, in its most basic sense, is an expression of the artist. That's what art is. It's to be an expression of the artist. This is, this is a, uh, you know, just his expression in, in, in the medium in which he works and uses. Well, the Bible says that, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so really that means that we are to be an expression of the artist who made us, and, and that expression is to come forth in the works in which you and I are participating in. And, and so, you know, as we live out these good works, wanting to express the artist, well, last week we focused on the idea that relationally, the fundamental aspect of that should be that that's manifested in our unity socially. That our, our unity, one with another, should reflect the artist who made us. And we heard the, the heart's cry of the Lord Jesus Christ where he would pray in his high priestly prayer, Father, I pray that they would be one even as you and I are one. And so we looked at this last week, that we should not be divided relationally, but rather we should be unified relationally. We should be unified uh, one with another. Um, I shared with you a, a quote from David Guzik speaking about this, this social unity. He said, if the lordship of Jesus is not greater than any difference you have with others, then you have not fully understood what it means to be in Christ. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, I don't know about you guys, last week's message for me, I mean, I'm preaching it, but at the same time as I'm studying this, uh, you know, I'm taking a walk with, Lord, how do you want to speak to me through your word and when we talk about issues of being connected one with another, being unified socially, I don't have a problem being unified with the Lord. I mean, that's cool and all. You know, we all kind of, we cut ourselves some slack, don't we? You know, it's like, you know, I know I'm not the greatest prize to be won, but, but, I, but I'm not Charles Manson, you know, kind of thing. And, and so we're, we don't have a problem with God connecting with us, you know, in, in unity with us. Where we have a problem is being connected in unity one with another, right? It's, that, it's like that quote I shared last week, church would be a great place if it wasn't for all the people, you know? 
And, and so what happens so often is that we have a breakdown with our relational connections. Socially, we are, we are not connected to one another. Socially, we're not unified always with one another. And I, I heard lots of testimonies coming back this week about the, the Holy Spirit just, just beating, beating y'all up last week uh, in a good way. Just being, hey, I gotta, if I'm, if I'm going to be in Christ, then I can't be divided here. And so such sweet testimonies coming in of people last week doing business with, with the Lord and, and going and making relationships that were severed, divisive, going and making them right. I heard wonderful praise reports coming through our marriage ministry uh, and just how, you know, in several of our marriages, same dynamic taking place where it's like, no, we can't be divided. We need to be unified. And so as we continue today, the focus shifts from social unity to spiritual unity. We're going to pick it up in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, and here's what Paul says. He, uh, he says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, you had this whole social rift between the Jews and the Gentiles. We're going to get into that a lot in the next chapter. Um, but, you know, Paul says, hey, you know, you who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul says, don't forget, not only were you once separated from one another, you were also separated from God. You were far off. Maybe you saw the news this last week on Thursday, 4.30 in the morning, uh, this young mother, Brianna Marshall, she woke up, she was in uh, Beloit, Wisconsin, and she woke up, and, and she, she, she has a five-day-old son, uh, and, uh, and he's gone. She can't find him anywhere. She frantically searching, can, can, you, can you imagine, I mean, this is her first child, I mean, you're, you're, you're freaked out about it. And I mean, I remember Brenda and I with our first child, Megan. We brought her home, and we, she's there in her little car seat, and we stick her on the table, and we look at each other. We're like, now what? You know? <laughs> you're, you're nervous enough as it is. And so this gal, she brings, she brings her child home and um, wakes up, gone. So she is inconsolable, as you can imagine, you know? So she called 911. And they begin uh, a, a manhunt to find, to find this child, <clears throat> covering several states. Well, great police work leads them to this tip. There's this gal, and, and she, she's a little off, man. You know, her, she's, she's, she's a taco shy of a combination plate. Her, you know, elevator doesn't go all the way to the top, whatever you want to say. But basically, she... Um, she had ordered this prosthetic advice that, that made her appear to be pregnant, and she'd been sending out emails to all of her friends talking about her pregnancy and expecting a child and all. And, um, and so they tracked this gal down to Iowa. This is like still in the, in the developing hours of this child being, being gone. And again, this happens in Wisconsin. They're now in Iowa tracking this gal down by her cell phone records, seeing this, this route 
that she's taken. So they finally get her, and uh, she denies knowing anything about it, and there's no baby. Mom's freaking out. Everybody's freaking out. Well, again, great police work. This, this one police officer decides, I'm, gonna, I'm going to personally go to every single gas station along this route that we know she took from her cell phone records, and I'm going to look for this baby. And so there, at a gas station, he finds a plastic container with the baby inside. Now, it's below zero, and God knows how long this, this little boy was out there, and thankfully, mercifully, the child's fine. He and the mom are reunited. Now, I tell you this story because when I think, you know, I, I consider Paul's words here in verse 13 when he says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. I consider this little baby and the plight and the, the, the just, I mean, he's in Iowa, mama's in Wisconsin. He is far off. There is a lot of separation there. And, and I think, man, this is, you know, largely serves as a picture of, of kind of our state, the situation that we're in, and that we're separated from God as well. And I think how, how awesome it was that this baby was rescued, and, and certainly it was, and as awesome as it was that this baby was rescued, man, it pales in comparison to what Jesus did for us. Because the amazing, amazing truth about Christianity is that God himself came into the world to save sinful men. The Bible says that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And the most amazing thing to me is that Jesus did it for the ungrateful, he did it for the unrepentant, and he did it for people who are profoundly undeserving. Right? I mean, amazing. You see, that cop who saved that kid, his day ended with him a hero. No question. The love, the admiration of thousands. He's got my love and admiration, certainly. Great work, man. Good thinking. And, and God knows, you know, had he not done that, how long that child would have been lost out there. And so his day ended well. A hero's welcome, respect of his peers, no doubt a letter of commendation. But Jesus' day, and he rescued us, man, his day ended with unimaginable, unimaginable excruciating pain, with suffering, with scorn, with ridicule, with torture, with death. And yet, he purposefully and willingly did it for us because he loves us. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul was talking to the Colossians church, Colossian church. He said this. He says, For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, having made peace, through the blood of his cross. That word reconcile that Paul uh, uses there in, in the epistle to the Colossians, it literally means to change from one condition to another and to completely restore. 
to change from one condition to another and to completely restore. And Paul continues in this letter to the Colossians to describe to them the conditions that they were in, that we were in before we were saved, uh, which God changed and completely restored. He says this, he says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and without or and above reproach in his sight. Now, that word alienated, you, you, you might say this. You might say that, that it means that they were transferred to another owner. That's, that's the way you, you, you might you might interpret that word alienated, transferred to another owner. Years ago, we were building a church, and um, we were, were in, in the middle of construction, and, uh, and all, we, we kept getting robbed. There were, there, were, there were guys that would come to the, to the construction site at night, and they would steal stuff from us, a bunch of meth heads, and they're just looking to get stuff, and so they, we kept getting robbed. And it was kind of nickel and dime sort of stuff to start with, and then they went for it all. We had rented a, a tractor, a uh, $100,000 piece of equipment that we were renting. They stole it. And so one of the guys got the bright idea. He's like, you know what? What we need to do is we need to get a presence out here, a 24-hour presence out here. And so we bought, as a church, we bought a fifth-wheel trailer, and we stuck the fifth-wheel trailer out on the property. And, and, you know, with the intention of we're going to staff it, you know, 24 hours, and we were going to use this as a base of operations for, for this, this holy work that we're doing of, of building, you know, the Lord's house and all. And so we're doing that. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? They stole the trailer. They stole the trailer, man. And uh, we looked everywhere for it, filed a police report, couldn't find it anywhere. And uh, finally, what ends up happening, months and months and months go by, and then we get a call, we found your trailer. Well, as it turns out, the guy that stole the trailer was cooking meth in it, makes it even worse. He had this 16-year-old girl that he was doing God knows what with in that trailer. It was filled with pornography. And so the police dump it back on, uh, on our property now, and now we have to go through this, this trailer. The, the, and, and I remember at the time, I'm thinking, this is just a picture of what Satan does to us. Because here you have this thing, and, and man, it, it was, we owned this thing, and it was meant for a high holy purpose. But it was transferred to another owner who used it in a despicable, horrible way. And I thought, this is just such a picture of sinful men. Meant for something holy and pure, but stolen and used for evil. That's exactly what Paul's saying here, that we... We were transferred to another owner, and we were taken captive to do as well. Maybe that describes you today. Maybe as I'm describing this trailer, maybe here today, you're thinking, man, that, that's me. Your trailer has become a place of defilement. It's become a place of shame. And listen, I would tell you that you're meant for so much more. That God loves you and that his desire for you is to use you and to bless you, use your life for wonderful things, to, to bless your life, and, and, and you're meant for so much more. 
And if today you have become, man, you would say, I'm, I am far off. I've been taken away. Listen, I can tell you that God's just waiting for you to come back. He's just waiting for you to turn to him. He, he loves you. He wants to know you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've become. It doesn't matter where you are. He loves you with an unending love. And I'm going to give you an opportunity today when we close in prayer, I'm going to give you an opportunity to cry out and to receive his love. And the the argument may be in your heart is I've done too much. No, you haven't. There's nothing the Bible says that can separate you from the love of God. He loves you with an unending love. And you think, well, wait a minute, no, I gotta, he's, he's mad at me. I've done too much, I gotta get it cleaned up. No, no, you will never get it cleaned up. He'll take care of it. He wants to know you. All he wants you to do is surrender to him. You're gonna have that opportunity today. Listen, something else, and it, and it wasn't in my notes, but the Lord impressed upon my heart this morning. Turn, turn to, uh, to Revelation chapter two real quick. Revelation chapter two. Remember here, Paul's writing this letter, this epistle, which is a fancy word for a letter. He's writing it to the Ephesians, to the Ephesian church. And he's reminding them, look, you used to be far off, but now God's brought you near. He's encouraging them about what God's done in their life. Well, in Revelation chapter 2, the apostle John wrote a letter to this church in, in, in Ephesus as well. And listen, this is just a few years later, and listen to to, to John's words to them by, really, God's words to them through the Apostle John. He says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, uh, Revelation 2, verse 1, write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have preserved or uh, persevered rather and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Listen, a lot of times we, you know, we'll have an opportunity to, to counsel and to encourage people. And, uh, and one of the things that we do most often here at the church is marriage counseling. And, and it's, it's, it's so sad oftentimes in the sense that you, you, here you have a husband and wife and, and they, they have gotten to the place where, where they're barely talking, where, where they, you know, oftentimes say, I don't, we don't love each other anymore. And, and they're, they're just at each other's throats and you, and you think and you consider and you talk to them about, well, at one time they were so much in love. They were so, so committed to one another. And, and you just begin unraveling. It's like, what got you from here to here? And a lot of times what we will do is we will apply this prescription that is given uh, by the Holy Spirit of God through the Apostle John to the church of Ephesus that had lost their first love, Jesus. And he says, hey, listen, remember, repent, 
repeat. You need to remember the height from which you've fallen. You need to remember, we will tell these couples, you need to remember where your relationship once was. And, and you need to repent. It's a word that means to turn. You need to repent from where it's gotten to. And repent to turn from what to what. That's the next thing. The first works. Repeat. Go back and do those first works. And so we will tell these couples, this is what you need to do. You need to remember. You need to repent. And you need to repeat. And this is what the Lord would say to the church in Ephesus. Hey, listen. You've lost your first love. With this in mind, and here we are in the, in the, the chapter 2 of the letter to the Ephesians. And what, what Paul is, is saying is, look, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. What, what I'm saying to you, and by this is just the leading of the Spirit, I know that this is the truth. And just by the reaction and the response of the, 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 those in first service, I know this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Some of you today, you're far off because you've never surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I talked to you about that, and I'm going to give you an invitation and an opportunity to respond to that today. Some of you are afar off because you were once, you were, you're saved, you have the hope of heaven, you're born again, you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he died on the cross for your sin in your place, that he rose again on the third day, conquering sin and death. You believe all of that, and yet... Your fire, your flame, it was once burning bright and now it has gotten to the place where you've lost your first love. And in your heart of hearts right now, you know who you are. And here's the beauty. The Lord is speaking to you today and he's saying, come back. Remember your first love. And for you also, I'm gonna give you an opportunity today at the end of the service just to respond And to confess, the Bible says, if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that word confess, it it really means to agree with God. To agree that that you are God. To agree agree that what I've done is sinful. And to agree, hey, his love for you can never, ever, ever be exhausted. Your capacity to sin will never exceed God's capacity to love you which is not a license to sin. It's an invitation to come back. He loves you with an unending love. And here's the result of that. Paul gets into it in the very next verse. You know what the result is? It's peace. That's the result. Do you have peace this morning? Because you can. Here's what Paul says. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, And he came, verse 17, and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Hey, listen, it's not Jew, it's not Gentile, it's us together. God has done this work. He loves you. He's he's made this way to redeem you, to reconcile you both to one another and to God. 
And the result is that you can have peace. And Paul says in verse 14, he himself is our peace. It's interesting, that word he, it's a pronoun and, and it's in the emphatic position, which basically means that the, the idea that's being conveyed here is that there is no other source. That's what's being conveyed here. There is no other source. Jesus alone is our peace. That's what he's saying. That's why it's translated he himself, he alone. He only. See, because the thing is, we oftentimes, we look for peace in a lot of different things, don't we? We look for peace in, 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 in our job situation. I just need to have some peace here. I'm worried about, you know, am I going to have, well, if I can just get a secure job, well, then I'll be at peace. Or, or, you know, if I just make enough money, then I'm going to have peace. If I just have enough money in my checkbook, then I will have peace. For many, often it's, man, how can I have peace with God? Well, if, I, if my good works outweigh my bad works, well, then I'm going to have peace with God. Well, if I, if I, if I don't sin and if I, really, if I walk really good, then I'm not going to have guilt because, man, then guilt and shame and condemnation and then I'm just going to be, I'm not going to have peace in that place. It's kind of like Toy Story, you know, at the end where they push Woody out of the truck and the the. the Toy says, well, now I've got guilt, you know, and that's how a lot of us live our lives. It's like, well, great, now I got guilt on top of it, and we don't have any sort of peace. So what laws, what rules, what sacrifices, what money, what good deeds couldn't do, Jesus Christ did. Do you have peace this morning? A reporter was interviewing Harrison Ford. And uh, he said in the course of the interview, he goes, you always want what you ain't got. And the guy's like, Harrison Ford, millionaire, movie star, what ain't you got? Peace. Do you have peace? Because you can. Jesus Christ is our peace. And what we have to understand is that just as sin is a source of all conflict and of all division, it's also the enemy of peace and harmony. See, sin at its most basic level, it's selfishness. And, and you can't focus on yourself without infringing on someone else. James, the half-brother of Jesus in, in James chapter 4, he said this, he said, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And here's the deal. Peace, it comes only when you die to self. Peace comes only when you die to yourself. And the only place that ha that happens is at the cross of Calvary. That is the only place that you're going to die to yourself. Paul said this to the Galatians. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, not in my works, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want you to notice also there in verse 14, it says that Jesus has broken down the middle wall of separation. You know, in the temple... Um, there between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, there was an actual wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. And what Paul's saying here is that in Jesus Christ, that wall has been broken down and the common lordship of Jesus Christ is greater than any division that we will have. 
There was a um, firefight in World War II where the U.S. soldiers were fighting against the German soldiers. I'm told this is a true story. And, and as they were fighting, uh, they, were at, they were at a farmhouse. And uh, the family that lived in that farmhouse was hunkering down uh, there in, in the field behind the farmhouse for safety. And in, the, in, and in all the commotion, the three-year-old became so upset that she ran out. Well, she ran right into the crossfire between the, the German soldiers and the, and the U.S. soldiers. And everybody immediately stopped fighting. A baby brought peace. It was a short-lived peace. Until that, that baby was scooped up by her mom and they got out of the way and then the fighting resumed. But that baby brought peace. And in the same way, listen, Isaiah says this. He says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Here it is, Prince Peace. Jesus came to bring peace. And Paul says, listen, his presence is that which brings peace. And he says this. He says, now he makes one new man from the two. Again, the context, the idea, Jew, Gentile, both divided from one another, both divided from God, the Jew in his religiosity divided from God, the Gentile in, in just his, his, his pagan living divided from God. And what Paul says is that, listen, they have now come together. He makes one new man from the two. That word new is super interesting. As you look at it, um, it's, it, it, it speaks of a new quality of man. That's the idea there. When he says he makes one new man from the two, it's a new quality of man. And I'll illustrate it to you this way, because this is, this is a sweet way to look at it, man. Years ago, we, we, had, a, we had a marriage retreat, and uh, we used to do this every once in a while. We would, we would get the, you know, the three-day cruise that goes down to Ensenada? Um, it's, it's called the booze cruise because it's the cheap cruise and all the college students go down there and do it. Well, we wanted to redeem that for the Lord. So we scheduled a marriage retreat and we all took a cruise on this boat. It's got its pros and cons. I, I think maybe we'll do it again, maybe do a family retreat or something like that. It's just a, it's, it's, booze cruise is kind of a funny place to go and, and draw near to the Lord. But, um, you know, God hasn't called us to isolate. He's called us, called us to infiltrate. Amen? And so <laughs> we, we went down there, man, and, uh, and we, t- we took this cruise. We're having our marriage retreat. And, and uh, so we had all the members from our church doing it, and I invited Pastor Jerry from, from U-Turn for Christ, and he pastors Calvary Chapel Romaland. We invited them to come. They brought several of their couples. So, so he's teaching. I'm teaching. And we get down to Ensenada, and he's got a, 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 a mission in, in Ensenada, a facility, a drug and alcohol rehab ranch there where they minister. They built a church. They minister to the Oaxacan Indians. And, uh, and so they're all set up there. And so what happens is um, we get there. Jerry's all fired up because they've just built this new church. He's like, Ted, you got to come check out the church. You got to see what we're doing there. Yeah, man, I can't wait to see it. So we go, and we check it out. And you know how cruise works. You go, you're in port for a few hours, and then, you know, all aboard, and you're on your way. So we got to get back to the ship. And, uh, and so Jerry goes, hey, listen, uh, my guy will take you here. And, um, and so there were so many of us, we had to take two cars. So he puts me in the car with a, with a guy, Pastor Anthony, who, a wonderful brother in Christ. He's since gone home to be with the Lord. Uh, neat brother. But he's in the car, and I've known him for years. And, uh, and, and so I'm like, you know what, Anthony, I've never heard your story, bro. What, tell me your testimony. Tell me your story. 
And so he starts telling me his testimony about being strung out on drugs, strung out on alcohol, just completely running as far and as fast from God as he can. And, uh, and as I told you guys in the beginning of the announcements, basically, I love the heart uh, of Pastor Jerry in the sense that he's, uh, he just is all about, look, let's get you on track with the Lord. Uh, I don't care what you've done. The Lord doesn't care what you've done. Just come back to him and let me tell you about him and then let me get you on the road to serving him. So Anthony's in this place. He's, he's, give, he's saved barely two weeks, um, and it's questionable about whether or not he's saved. Jerry's putting him in a position of service, puts him, hey, would you, would you be one of my drivers? So Anthony takes the vehicle, and uh, he sells it and buys a bunch of meth. This is, this is his thing. Now, as he's telling me this story, where am I? I'm driving in a van with him that belongs to Pastor Jerry. And he's telling me this testimony. I'm just thinking, oh my gosh. I go, he trusts you with another car? And this is years and years past. And, and the guy with tears in his eyes just shares with me, that's the Lord we serve. And that's the heart of my pastor. Where so many people would have written me off and so many people, you know, once I stole the car, I would be like, you can deal with the cops, You're not, I'm not dealing with you anymore. He said, he, he, he didn't care about the car. He loves me. Listen, metaphorically speaking, Jesus doesn't care about the car in your life. He cares about you. And the beauty of this is that here you have a guy divided, running as far and as fast from God as he can, biting the hand that feeds him, all of these things, and he puts him right back in the same place and gives him another car. Man, I just want you, I, I just want to see God moving and working in your life. He makes a new quality of man. God wants to do that in your life. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And see, what had once been two people divided and brought into harmony, brought into unity. So being together in Christ, we're delivered from death, Paul says. We're deployed to lead others from death. And we're insulated from division with one another and with God. And the, 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 the fourth and final point that I want to uh, just bring out of this chapter here before we draw to a close is this. Being together in Christ brings a duty to build the kingdom of God. Hey, we've been delivered from death. We've been deployed to lead others from death. We're, we're insulated from division. But this, listen, now we have a duty to build the kingdom of God. Verse 19. Now, therefore, Paul says, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Listen, this idea is, look, our duty in the body of Christ. Now, when we get into chapter 4, Paul's going to go really deeply into the roles and, and all that we've been called to, to fulfill in, in our duty uh, to, to the Lord. But, um, and so we'll get, we'll get much more in detail in chapter 4, but, but this is just kind of what I want to bring out here. The, being in Christ carries with it a duty. And what Paul says, he says, man, 
this, this, this whole building's being fitted together. And, and prior to that, he says, look, you're no longer strangers. You're no longer foreigners. But in Christ, you're fellow citizens with the saints. And beyond that, you're members of the household of God. Being a member of the household. Now, I don't know about the house that, that you grew up in or the house now that, that you preside over, but, but I'll just tell you a little bit, you know, in our household, which, is, which I'm, I'm persuaded is, is entirely like your household. Um, my kids, they would have loved, they're all adults now, they all got their own households, but they would have loved growing up to be King Farouk, you know? That's what they wanted. They thought we didn't get the memo, you know, that, 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 that their role in the household was to be waited upon and that their mom was their maid and that I was their butler. That's what they thought. Incredulous that that was not the case. Now, my job was to tell them, listen, you're a member of this household, which means that you have duties that you have to do. So often, when, when the Bible teaches us things, there, there are these concepts, and, it, and if we will superimpose the concepts of what God teaches us over the family, it makes so much sense. When you think about God's kingdom and our role in it, and you go, how is the family supposed to function? You go, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So it is with this issue of our duty in being members of the household of God. So in my house, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay my kids an allowance. So oftentimes the, the attitude was, hey, you know, what do I get for doing the dishes? Well, nothing. You're a member of the house. You do the dishes. We all play our part. I take out the trash. You clear the table. You wash. You dry. Or as it is, you know, in all of our house now, you rinse and you load the dishwasher and you unload the dishwasher. And, you know, you pick up after yourself. I mean, all the basic stuff that is required of the household of God. These are basic duties, right? Now, if you have a child who, who, who wants to just blow in and just say, hey, what's for dinner? Uh, hurry it up. And they eat, and they wipe their mouth, and they walk away. You're going to say, hey, you know, get back here. Clear your plate. You know, this isn't a catered meal, you know, kind of deal. And so this is the way it is with the household of God. So, the, so here's the point. The point is for us, we, we have been blessed by God abundantly. He, he has gone to great lengths to redeem us, to rescue us, to make us a member of his household. Is it so much that he should, should require that, that we now be faithful, responsible members of that household and fulfill the duties that are reasonable? Is that so much? No, absolutely not. Okay, so take a walk with that. Are you being faithful to your duties? This isn't about Pastor Ted filling out the, oh, we need help in the children's ministry, or we need help in the, you know, what. It's not about that. It's about the family of God being faithful to fulfill their duties. So I just ask you, it's not between you and me, it's between you and the Lord. Are you being faithful to fulfill your duty? And having said that, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just say this. I'm going to close with this. We're going to pray. We'll partake of communion. and go on with the Lord today. But I want to close with this. Keeping that in mind, our duty. 22 years ago, my wife and I were barely saved. We, we were just barely, barely saved. 
we had been going to a church, and, and it's a long story, but basically we had, we had fellowship at this church in Temecula on Sunday that we were attending, which no longer exists. And the whole rest of the week, we were living in Menifee, and there was no Christian fellowship, no nothing. So six days a week, nothing. On the seventh day, we would go to church, and, and that was it. And so we were living basically with our foot in two worlds. And, and in this world, it was... We, we were encountering the Lord, we were being fed, we had Christians that were spurring us on towards love and good deeds, and we loved it, baby Christians, but man, it was awesome. In this world, where we were spending the majority of our time, beer drinking, partying, non-saved, just, you know, all the, all the people that we were keeping company with here, we recognized, we need some more Jesus, man, we need him desperately. So we started looking, well, where are we going to get more fellowship, and, and so what we came to find in a quick hurry was the only way we were going to get Christian fellowship was to start a Bible study in our home. Totally selfish reason, we started a Bible study. Now, I'm dumb as a box of rocks at this point. If you told me Habunkus was a book of the Bible, I would have believed you, you know? Well, in Second Assumptions, it says this. I'd be like, well, where's Second Assumptions, man? You know? We started a Bible study. I'm, I'm, I'm like teaching this Bible study. That's a scary thought, right? I just want to know the Lord. I want to honor him. And God, you know, and so often when it comes to us fulfilling our duty and being responsible to the Lord, so often our response is, well, I'm, I'm not qualified. There, there's got to be somebody who knows more that can do it. And, and I'm not qualified and all that. And, and I would just simply say, you're right. But God's not looking for your ability. He's looking for your availability. That's the idea. There's a duty that needs to be done. And for us, what happened, we start this Bible study. We, we put our name on the pastor's wanted list at Costa Mesa. I'd never set foot in a Calvary chapel. I didn't know. All I knew was by reputation they taught the word of God. I thought, well, that's cool. We need some of that. And so I put our name on the pastor's wanted list at Costa Mesa. And, and this little Bible study that, that us and two of our friends, so four of us, start, grows into, over the next 10 years, a mega church. With, with like 6,000 members. Like, that's God. I don't care how you want to describe it. It's God doing the work. Now, it's not about the 6,000 members. Here's what it's about. I want you to hear this. Because I think back, and here's what, here's what I think about. I think about two people that just desperately wanted to know the Lord. I think about God pouring out his Holy Spirit, and I think about the literally thousands of people who have come to know Jesus Christ over the 22 years that have followed. I think about all of the churches that have been planted. I think about all of the work that God has done in my heart. And listen, I'm moved to tears to hear about all the work that God is doing in your hearts and in your lives. Can I just tell you, that's the thing that sustains Brenda and I. As we go through and we think about the things of the ministry and, you know, when you endeavor to serve the Lord, you'll be attacked. You just paint a bullseye on you. You know, you remember that far side commercial, the, the deer's there, he's got the bullseye on him, and his, bu his buddy says, bummer of a birthmark, Hal, you know, and that's, that's it when you, when you step out to serve the Lord, but man, I just think about everything that God has done. And here's a sobering question. What if I didn't do it? What if I said no? Are you going to say no? No. 